0: Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of the Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by Stillwater guru, Phil Rowley. We talk a little Stillwater fishing, and Phil shares his journey from writing for his club newsletter to becoming one of the prominent voices in our sport today. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And a shout out to this episode's sponsor. This episode's sponsored by our friends at Norvice. Their motto is, tie better flies faster, and they produce the only vice that truly spins. To see for yourself, in 2022, the folks from Norvice will be at all the fly fishing shows and the Texas Fly Fishing and Brew Festival. If you're in the Edison, New Jersey area on January 28th, 29th, or 30th, stop by the Norvice booth at the Fly Fishing Show. If you miss them there, you have a chance to catch up with them the following weekend at the Fly Fishing Show in Atlanta. Now, on to our interview. Well, Phil, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Thanks, Marvin. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation, and we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. We always like to ask our guests to share their earliest fishing memory.
1: My earliest fishing memory? Well, it's actually, it's um, it, it's not too, uh, too hard to recall. I. I was born in England, so we emigrated to Canada when I was seven, so I think my first fishing trip, I, I don't know the exact age, but I assume I was around six years old, and course fishing was really big, it wasn't fly fishing, and there was a uh, nearby park called Sefton Park that had a lake in it, and I remember going... Uh, down to that my mom and dad were gracious enough to let me go out with the neighbor's kid who must have been about 13, 14 Peter Hopley and uh, I went down and uh, I remember setting up and we would be trying to catch roach and bream and rud and a carp was sort of the the pinnacle of course fishing success and we would bait up hooks with maggots I remember going into the bait store these are just little flashes of the getting a tub of maggots and all different colors and writhing around and you obviously bait your hook up, and you'd catch your fish and then you put them in this long keep net um, that was sort of staked to the bank and then the net trailed off into the water and you'd put your catch in there and like at the end of the day you'd kind of look at them and let them all go. <laughs> so that was sort of my first memory. Uh,
0: yeah, The bug was planted. Yeah, was that with those really, really long kind of telescoping rods?
1: I think so, yeah. Um, I can't even remember, you know, I, like I say, it's just flashes. Uh, just uh, I know they were long and I've seen those telescoping rods they use on those, uh, some of those carp shows that uh, I remember watching one on uh, a fishing network many years ago, kind of chuckling, oh, look at this, this is crazy, sat down for 15 minutes saying, well, I'll turn this over, and I, an hour and a half later, I was still watching it all, just fascinated by, you know, all the different bait mixes they used and the different equipment and those telescoping rods with elastic bands on the end and probing down the bank and it was which peg they got, it was quite fascinating.
0: Yeah, it's really neat, and, you know, I always also like to ask, you know, when you came to the dark side of fly fishing.
1: (laughs) The dark side of fly fishing? Yeah. Um, I started in my early 20s. I had, um, and it was kind of a, my wife and I look back on it, it was kind of this surreal experience. We had been on a trip soon after we were married, so I must have been 23 and 24, maybe, and, um, we had gone over to Vancouver Island. I I lived in British Columbia, the uh, westernmost province in Canada for 35 years before moving to Alberta, where I am now, which is just one province over to the East. And we had gone to a lake and spent uh, the better part of a week there. And it was kind of embarrassing how well we performed. We were just trolling around in circles and not really understanding what we were doing. And I remember sitting, our, our campsite was by the fire one night and, uh, um, you know, so it was kind of twilight, and this gentleman walked down, and in, in looking back, he was the image of Roderick Haig Brown. He had a wicker creel, hip hip boots on, hip waders, and a uh, fly reel, and fish were rising, and he walked down, uh, waded in a little bit, made a few casts, caught a bunch of fish, took a few home in his creel, disappeared off into the, into the low light. And at that point, I was playing uh, sort of casual hockey, And I had a friend of mine who, um, his dad had mentored him uh, through fly fishing and was always after me and teasing me to come fly fishing. And for whatever reason, I always, you know, turned him, you know, sort of, no thanks, not interested or didn't have the time or whatever the reasons were. And yet, um, I phoned him up when I got home I said, okay, there's something to this fly fishing thing. So, um, um, he gave me a couple of rudimentary casting lessons. And then I went out the following weekend with him and his dad to a river, uh, about two hours east of Vancouver, uh, called the Skagit River, and uh, caught my first fish uh, on that trip um, on a dry fly. Um, a trout, a nice trout, and uh, I was hooked because I had never felt anything like that. Uh, you know, to watch a fish come up and eat the fly, and just the the immediate connection you have between yourself and the fish that's not muffled by any of the gear you're using, and that was... It was as the pun would say, I was hooked, and I've been into it ever since. It's all I've ever wanted to do.
0: Yeah, very neat. Who are some of the folks that have mentored you on your fly fishing journey?
1: It's hard to see. You know, a lot of people have mentored me without even realizing. So when I got into the sport, I was reading uh, everything. I remember going to a library. I think some people, like you and I, probably remember what libraries are. But um, I know my kids today don't do them much. It's all on the Internet. But um, getting every book, so people like... Um, you know Gary Borger, Dave Hughes, um, Doug Swisher, and then I had obviously my friend uh, Richard's father Ted, who ironically had the same name as my father, and um, Brian Chan, who's become a really good friend. We do a lot of uh, work together in the fellow Stillwater Addict. and it was all I joined as I got into fly fishing. I was uh, took a night school course, and. Um, one of the members, the person who was teaching it was from the Osprey Fly Fishers. And that was a local Vancouver club. So I sort of you know, went in and dropped in by myself and they had a, invited me in and took me under their wing. So I had a lot of mentors within that club as well. And it's, it's kind of funny, as my fly fishing career has evolved, I've got to meet, you know, Gary Borger. We we have casual conversations in elevators at shows. It's really kind of humbling um, to to see that Transpire as it has.
0: Yeah, it's really neat you say that because I would say, uh, from a book perspective, probably one of the most influential books I've ever read about fly fishing is Gary's presentation.
1: Yeah, fantastic book. I I wish that was still in print. It's um, you know I've referenced that book many times, and it's just a good book to go back and reread. He's you know his, his science background is is something that was what drew me to one of the things that drew me to the sport was things like entomology and just really getting in touch with how nature worked. Whereas when I, you know, fish traditional, conventional methods, put on this color, put on that, because somebody said it worked good, there wasn't a lot of science you know, a lot of trying to link what you saw in nature to how you chose to, you know, attack the problem and, and present things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so when did you get the bug to start fly tying?
1: <laughs> That's another kind of funny, because when I took you know, the fly fishing course and got into fly fishing. Um, I didn't know if I was going to be interested in fly tying. I know a lot of, I've heard a lot of people say they started tying flies first and then fly fished. I was the reciprocal of that. And um, I had, you know, probably a a year later decided to finally take a night school course with another person I had met, uh, Vic at the club and a friend of mine and um, we decided to take fly tying class together and uh, that just fascinated me um to do that so it was probably a year or so at least after uh, actually you know formally picking up the fly fishing bug.
0: And do you remember your first vice and the first fly you tied on it?
1: Oh, well, too well. Because British Columbia has such a strong um tradition of still water fishing, um there was a pattern, it's a bloodworm pattern which is a coronamid larva, a midge larva called a turncoffs bloodworm. It consisted of a sparse uh, tail of black bear hair, a wine burgundy colored chenille really fine and just a few strands of pheasant rump sort of tied around the head of the fly just to not imitate legs or anything but when the fly got wet it, it would move and it t- suggest a wiggling worm and that was all um, tied on my thompson a vice which served me for many years even when i started tying commercially
0: yeah absolutely and it's funny you say that because i you know uh from kind of watching you from afar in the industry it's clear that fly tying is kind of the the foundation of your career in the industry and you know when did you know that you wanted to make it a full-time career and why did you think that you know fly tying was the path to to move in that direction
1: I kind of think I want to make it a full-time career after that first fish on the Skagit. Uh made doing a traditional job seem kind of <laughs> not what I wanted to do. But um, fly tying I got into because I started, um, you know, tying. And we would, um, and I remember the Ospreys Club, we would have these um, Christmas dinners. And everybody would uh, donate a gift or to the auction. And I started putting fly plaques together. I was gluing flies, and, you know, on um I can't remember what the, shadow boxes there's a term i'm looking for and you would actually epoxy the fly to a pin and mount it in there and you know i started you know getting i just once i got into it like anything i just kept doing it and kept doing it so i got people said that they like my flies and then i uh, had a local fly shop badcock fly and tackle i'm still friends with brian the owner the former owner today and um he took a flyer on me and had me start to tie up some flies for his bins. This was before, obviously, all the, the fly-tying companies, uh, Montana Flies, the Umpos, Rainey's, Fulling Mill, all the companies that are out there nowadays. Um, you know, the local fly shops had local tires tie their fly patterns for them. So I started doing that, and my niche, I decided, because I had some other friends that were doing this, I was going to tie dry flies, so I wasn't picking this out very well. Because dry flies at that time, it was hard to find good quality hackle, and good quality hackle was kind of expensive so um but it did make me a good fly tire because um, dry flies are so proportionally demanding you know the hackle has to be sized the right way the wings have to be the right way the tail the right length or else the fly you know a traditional Adams or Catskill type type fly wouldn't float properly a tip on its head or, or what have you so uh yeah that sort of led into um from there fly tying courses
0: yeah so how long did you tie commercially
1: I argue I'd never really stopped but officially probably I did about ten years and um, then just got so busy doing other things and it was so hard to keep up um, you know after a while if I if you didn't you know tie at least a dozen or so or more a day you couldn't keep up with demand and then it started to become onerous and a bit of a job and um, you know that's That's probably the only time it kind of lost some of its luster. But with the online store I have now, I have been known on occasion if we are a little low of a pattern here and there to pull out the vice and quickly knock off three or four to fill an order. But uh, (laughs) that doesn't mean I'm taking orders commercially now. (laughs)
0: Yeah, (laughs) fair enough. And at the peak, I mean, how how many dozens a year were you cranking out?
1: Oh, God. Got it. Hard to, I never, I, it's been so long since I counted them. I should, I should know better than this, but you know, if I was doing at least 24, just grabbing some math here, if I was doing 24, you know, two dozen a night, you know, times, you know, 30 days in a month, um, times, uh, 12, months, uh, thousand dozen at least. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was, it was a lot. You know, because I tended to do flies that were um, tricky, and all I used to do was I would use it to purchase gear, right? Get rods, get lines, get reels, waders, those kind of things. I just tie on an account. It worked. Kind of a contra deal. Um, That's how it all started.
0: Yeah, very neat. And you know, you know, obviously, folks have seen you. You know, you write regularly for lots of fly fishing magazines. You've got four books. How'd you break into the outdoor writing game?
1: Um, again, it's back to the Osprey Fly Fishers. They used to have a a newsletter, um, that was, you know, formally printed and mailed to you. Um, and, you know, members were always encouraged to get involved and to write, um, about their experiences. So I started doing little articles here and there. And then I actually, um, enjoyed that and started, you know, always, you know, with the fly tying, as you mentioned, decided, you know, why don't I start a column? So I had a column, I think, called Phil's Fly Box. I think I named it. So I would feature um, different club patterns um, and different patterns around just illustrating different things and sort of got some confidence up and got exposure to writing. And, and a few people said, you know, you're not half bad at this. So um, then I started reaching out, you know, decided, well, I'm going to try and approach different magazines. So I would send out, you know, at that time you would type a letter and mail it off a, a query letter. And a lot of time, many, well, many, all the time they came back, you know, your, your article doesn't meet our editorial needs. So I felt I was like, um, trying to, you know, shooting in the dark. I had no idea where the target was or where it was or how big it was and just trying to guess. So I finally took the initiative and looked on the masthead of the magazine and saw they had a phone number and called the editors and, uh, they were very, uh, helpful and, and willing to, you know, give me advice and, uh, um. And I remember one gentleman, Art Check, who, wrote, who was the editor at the time for American Angler Magazine, um, because I had put, I think one of my proposal my queries was how to fly fish lakes. And he just said, that's way too broad. He said, take a piece of paper and write down everything you can think of that goes into you know, how to fly fish a lake. And each one of those little things is an article subject unto itself. So that gave me a lot of ideas and talking with the editors to what they wanted. So my next submission was basically we'd already almost had it agreed to in the phone call. And I just and then once you start writing a few articles, you gain a little momentum. The ironic thing about it all was I had a heck of a time trying to get published in Canada, my home country. Right? There's, not, there's way more magazines in the United States, but um, I did have a, a, one time where I was at, at a show and, and met the editor of a magazine that I, I now have been writing a column in for over 10 years. Um, the editor at that time asked me, oh, you're right. How come you've never written for us? And I kind of smiled, a little sly smile. Well, you turned me down. So I sold it to another <laughs> art magazine in the States. And he kind of drooped his shoulders and went, oh, well, I guess we have to fix that. So the rest was history on that relationship. It was kind of funny.
0: Yeah, very, very neat, and I always like to ask uh, authors and, and writers how they like to write. Like, you know, some people like to get up every morning and write for an hour and a half before they do their day job, or they write, you know, kind of in spurts. How do you like to do it?
1: I'm probably a blend of those two things. I would try to do it every day, particularly when you've got a book project, because you've got a deadline and you've got to get it done. But, you know, some, th- some days the writing fl- flowed freely and almost... You know, it was like a cork. Once it came out, I couldn't stop. And other days, I couldn't write a paragraph. It was just as, you know, struggled with the formatting and how am I getting, you know, the idea is spinning around in my head, um, but it won't transmit to my hands or my fingers now with typing. Um that I could get it out and articulate it properly. So it's sort of a love-hate relationship.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. That flows uh, nicely into my next question, which is funny also. When I talk to authors, some of them really like the process of writing and editing, and yeah. some really don't like it at all. And uh, I was kind of curious where you kind of fall in that continuum.
1: I'd like to like it, but I probably lean towards the dread portion. I have talked to uh, many authors. I often have... I remember having a conversation with Dave Hughes because he's had a heck of a lot of books published, and he's one of those, he would get up and write for an hour and a half every day, and that's what he did. And I just, you know, with a, you know, he was a full time writer at that time, so in some ways he had the ability to do that, but I still had a nine to five normal job. That's. The right term, so it just did, that didn't work. So I would oftentimes have to come home and write after work, or um, get up really early in the morning to do it. And and um, you know, I could never find um, the right time. I remember there's a book out there. There's two books. You used to read Elements of Style as one, and On Writing Well by I think it was Richard Ginzler. I think his name is. And the opening paragraph, uh, the opening um, part of the book, the introduction is basically he was sitting at a panel of writers and he, each of them is being asked, you know, a very similar question to this one. And a lot of them are, you know, acting poetic, how it fulfills them. It's this existential stuff and all this um, stuff. And it gets to him and he just, I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard. It doesn't go well. It fights me every point of the term. And I, I went, That's Me Some Days, and I, you know, that book had instant value then, and his concepts were um, good. So those are two books, if anybody's aspiring to write, um, Elements of Style and uh, On Writing Well, were two books that, uh, you know, just talked about writing and and sort of the magazine genre and, and just writing books and, and things like that and just coming to you know because i'm always trying to talk to other authors and find out how they do things and you know, how do they map it out how do they plan it because it's interesting to see how other people do it and see if you can adapt some of that to your own process
0: yeah absolutely and i'll drop links to both those in the show notes um yeah. yeah i'm familiar with elements of style i'm not familiar with the second one but it's um what you're talking about kind of um He's close to home because I spent a, a good chunk about a year ago helping my oldest son with his college essays. And uh, yeah. so uh, for Christmas, he got a copy of Old Man in the Sea and Strunk and White because he needed a little bit of help.
1: <laughs> it, it's funny. when my son, I think my oldest son was going to college and having to write papers. He'd ask me to read it and edit it. He used to get so mad at me because, you know, I remember when I was in school and like most teenage boys, you're in the academic stuff, you're just – um, either chasing girls or want to go play sports somewhere. So you're always, you know, when is this math or algebra ever going to benefit me in life, and when am I ever going to use English? And I, I look back now, I'm sure my English teachers would be <laughs> chuckle quietly at what what became. Because all of a sudden, you start to, you know, understand how how to use the language and how to grammar and and all that kind of stuff to set it up. So I used to cut his articles pretty his essays pretty bad. He used to get pretty frustrated.
0: Yeah. I will say, though, you know, uh, helping people uh, with their writing using Google Docs is a great, I thought was an awesome way to do it. Oh,
1: it's, yeah, we didn't have those resources. I'm so envious. You know, you would send something off and get sometimes the dreaded red pen, right? The the editor's sword that they used. I think it was red for blood um, (laughs) because they would just carve things up. But, you know, you learned it was really good because I remember one of my mentors, you know, talked about that was uh, the late. uh, Les Johnson, he wrote uh, for Frank Amato and wrote a few books uh, on the West Coast for Cutthroat and Salmon. And he was the editor of, um, I think it was Fly, Tying, and Fishing Journal. And he told me, um, you know, you write very concise, short. You know, if you can say uh, what, um, what, what originally took three sentences, if you can get it down to one, then you're writing well right? I think when I first started out, you're you're stuck on this word count thing, and it was almost like school, where you had to write an essay, it had to be 500 words, so you had a lot of ah, the, and and in there, uh just to take up word space, but you learn to, you know, when I edit now, I just hack, and half the time I'm editing, and I go the whole paragraph, what is this even doing here, and it's just gone, right? Because it's easy to get off on bunny trails, and, and off-topic, and, and sort of lose things, so you just got to learn to be ruthless, and Tear it to pieces. That's the fun part, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speaking of, yeah, and speaking of, you know, your fourth book, uh, the Orvis Guide to Stillwater Trout Fishing, I guess came out probably mid-spring last year, and I was really kind of curious about, you know, where the idea for the book came from.
1: Well, the idea has been in the books, my head for years. Um, my first book, Fly Patterns for Still Waters, um, followed by my second, to Stillwater S- Solutions Recipes, which I co-wrote with Brian Chan and Stillwater Selections were all primarily fly tying-based books. They had some presentation techniques woven in there um, throughout, but it was mostly a step-by-step fly tying books. So I'd always wanted to write how, you know, my philosophy on how I fish lakes. And um, so it's been bouncing around in my head for years. And just finally, I guess I got not pushed, but got into a situation where it, it. I was fortunate that it finally came to fruition and I got to write it.
0: Yeah. Very neat. And, you know, who, who did you write the book for?
1: Well, I wrote the book for anybody wishing to, uh, who had an interest in, in fly fishing lakes. Although it's written for, you know, the Orvis guide to, uh, fly fishing for the Orvis guide, God, could, uh, the Orvis guide to still water trout fishing. That wasn't good. Um, it um, it's anybody who fishes lakes because I use the same philosophy for fishing lakes, no matter um, what species I'm after. I grew, where I grew up in where I where I grew up as a fly fisher in British Columbia. Uh, fly fishing, you know, stillwater fly fishing is is uh, very very popular there. That's readily accessible. There's lots and lots of lakes. The fishing is very good. Um, and, and pretty well the same with Western Canada, Western North America. Um, so it was, it just sort of I gravitated towards it. Um, you know, the, the the other river fishing. There was a few. There's some very good river fishing in British Columbia. It's just not as well known as the stillwater fishing. And the other fishing was anadromous for steelhead or salmon. So to go steelhead fishing, you had to drive. You know. Twenty some odd hours and all that stuff, where I could drive two and a half, three hours or less and be into good, good lake fishing. So the book itself is tailored to, to you know, I wrote it as a, you know, remembering the struggles I went through trying to learn how to fly fish lakes and, and trying to, you know, pass along. Hopefully, my knowledge and my experiences help them shorten their learning curve so they get enjoy it as much as I do, but don't have to go through quite the trials and tribulations that I had to over the years. So it's sort of anybody aspiring, anybody who wants to fly fish lakes.
0: Yeah, very, very neat. And I'm always curious too. I've been lucky enough to have several authors on um, who unfortunately had to promote their books during the pandemic. What was that like?
1: Challenging, challenging. Yeah. My book, well, the, the, the book was originally slated for release just prior to Christmas of Uh, I guess it would have been 2020. But when the pandemic first hit, um, the publisher got furloughed for um, three months. So they were, they just almost disappeared um, because they were not in the office. So uh, that delayed it. It did give me time to tweak it and play with it some more. And, um, you know, which, always a good thing sometimes because you just end up going in this big circle where you start with a sentence or a paragraph or whatever you're talking about and go full circle to come back to it (laughs) after numerous edits you end up going right back to where it was um so it got released in may of 2021 which um you know I, i think the christmas period is always a good time to release a book because it's a gift it's new um but um you know those are the cards you dealt so it's you know, and a lot of the promotion I do myself through social media and, and podcasts such as this one and, and every avenue I can to get it out there. So part of the you asked about the book too was how it came to be as well was a conversation with Tom Rosenbauer for more of it. I'd had a the good fortune to to uh, film some television shows with, with Tom uh in the past and we were at at the author's booth at the fly fishing show in uh Somerset, when it was still there, it's now in Edison, and um, he was just—we were just catching up, talking, and he sort of said to me, "You know, we we haven't got a, a Stillwater book in the Orvis Guide series. We need one, I think. Um, but I think you'd be the guy to do it." So it's like a lot of times you have these conversations and shows that never really materialize into anything, and all of a sudden it's a phone call, an email exchange, and a contract, and. The rest is history, and you're on that euphoria. Wow, I'm finally going to get this done. And then we're sort of back to the dread of, oh, no, now I've got to write this thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. and speaking of, I think it took you over three years to write the book, and you know, I'm really kind of curious if anything kind of stands out in your mind about the writing process.
1: Well, the writing process, I had to have, um, and I can certainly see the publisher's uh, thoughts on this, is they wanted a chapter from me, I think within 90 days. Probably to see that I could actually string two sentences together. Um, so I, the for me the elephant in the room in the book uh, because the you know I, I'm 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 not a biologist by profession so but I'm attracted to that kind of stuff and um, one of the chapters is entitled how lakes work so that's all about how because lakes are although they're called still waters they're Probably anything but. They're always in a state of flux and transition as they go through the season, um, due to the impacts of water temperature, and stratification, and all this stuff. So it's it's technical and it's but it's important for fly fishers who fish lakes to understand because it really impacts where fish are going to be at any given time. So it helps you take that flat devoid sorry that flat void of water. Um, that can be kind of intimidating because there's no visible features and help you break it down a little bit and target areas of the lake that are, you know, depending on the season, most likely to be. So that was technical. And if I got it wrong, credibility, you know, it just dominoes to the rest of the book. If, if you don't have that right, the rest of the chapters are all suspects. So I got that one done first. And then uh, my good friend, Brian Chan, who's a fisheries biologist by profession and knows, knows this stuff inside and out, he uh, proofread invented that chapter for me, so that was done, and then it went off, and then I got the green light from the the editor. He liked it very little in the way of changes or edits, which was really refreshing, and then I was off and running, right? And I was just, you know, I had it all outlined out. So I'm a, a bi- I do a lot of mind mapping, where I'll take the concept and just do this kind of I call it brainstorming on paper. And now I know the software programs, you can do it, but I still do it the old-fashioned way with paper. Even when I write an article, I have the subject and then an introduction and all the things that go in, and it just looks like this, um, all these circles connected by lines, and then I'll string those into somewhat of an outline and just gather my thoughts. I'm just dumping everything out of my brain. I'm getting it on paper. I'm putting little asterisks by, you know, or I make make a point that needs a little bit of investigation to make sure it's accurate, whether it's, a, you know, I've spelled it right or using the science properly or whatever the reason that one needs a little investigating and then just sit down and, and get it written. Right. So that's
0: sort of how it all went. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of mind mapping too. Um, yeah, yeah I, uh, I have an app I like on my iPad, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's an awesome way to organize stuff. And you know, it's interesting, right? Because, um, you know, kind of being down in the mid-Atlantic, kind of upper south, you know, we don't have a lot of opportunities to fish still waters for trout down here. Um, but I was curious, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, you know, if there's an angler that wanted to target a non-trout species, you know, how can your book help them do that?
1: Well, I would, in simple terms, take the word trout out and put your favorite species in. Because, you know, I've, I've had the good fortune to, you know, fly fish across North America, both Canada and the United States, and now do hosted trips down to Argentina. So, and I've often, especially pre pandemic, where you got to, you know, physically travel to clubs and speak to them, I'd often, you know, the way travel works, you'd extend a day or you get invited. Would you like to go fishing when you're down here? Which was a really hard question to answer. Of course I would. (laughs) And a lot of times it was, non-trout you know we've got bass i'd love to fish for bass because i don't get the opportunity in the province i live now i did in british columbia but i didn't and i approach any still water situation using the same philosophy that's outlined in my book i fish the same methods because fish overall are fish sure they've got their quirks but you know you can you can fish strike intricate take techniques for smallmouth bass i fished coronomid techniques for panfish um you know, so I, I the same way. And in my uh, introduction of the book, I actually talked about that that I use exactly the same philosophy. I don't really get to. And it's a question that's often asked of me: is Okay, I want to go fish for this species. What would I do differently? And it's like not really much. You might play around with the fly types. Um, you know. And, the forage base you're trying to imitate, or things like that, or the flies, you know, for a bass, maybe a little bigger, maybe it's more minnow base, crayfish patterns, leeches, dragonfly nymphs, um, some of those things. Because I've been fortunate, I've got some good friends and acquaintances down in California who've used a lot of my dragonfly nymph patterns are amongst their favorites for fishing for bass in the delta, right? And it makes sense. The largemouth would eat a dragonfly nymph because at maturity, some of them are two, two and a half inches long, and Bass live in weedy areas, and dragonflies like to hunt and live in weedy areas. It's just going to be a, a good intersection of prey and predator.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, let's just say you're, you know, an average kind of uh, fly angler who doesn't traditionally fish still waters, you know, and you wanted to give it a try. It's almost like what, we, what would you do if you were going to go try your own nymphing? You know, what would you say if the average angler could kind of take, you know, out of his gearbox and, you know, how should he rig up and give it a shot?
1: Well, probably the easiest way nowadays is a floating line and a strike indicator. It's become very popular um, because the strike indicator, you know, a lot of traditional fly fishers, both river and lake, frown on fly fishing. Um, but yet, you know, I, when I guide, I often, am, you know, I've got people that haven't got a lot of experience. And one thing I want to ensure when somebody comes with me on the water is they have an enjoyable day and hopefully catch some fish. So to give them a difficult method to do it with, that involves, you know, their casting may not be, you know, in lakes, with the exception of strike indicators, we're trying to cover as much water as we can, so the further you can cast, the more likelihood you're going to run into a fish, but there's a lot more variables when you're just casting and retrieving, as far as how, you know, how long your leader is, how long you let it sink, what retrieve rate you use for your flies. there's just lots of things going on, and people that I see come, that are new to lakes, or, or struggle with how slow we move to fly sometimes um you know one of the best methods to fish in the west and productive lakes is midges or coronavits and we're fortunate in lakes that our average midge size is you know in the lakes i fish a 14 would be a 16 would be a small one and we've got some lakes where we're fishing coronavits midges that are 8 2 xl so they're big we call them bombers so um you know, they struggle with having to retrieve the slow retrieves for that. So the indicator gives them that visual clue for something to watch. um, And um, their depth of their presentation, which is another key presentation element, getting your fly to the right depth and keeping it there, that's set by the distance between the indicator and the fly and their retrieve because they can just let it sit out there and let the waves animate the indicator which translates down to the fly or they can slowly strip it back or hand twist it in there are a lot of different ways and of course it's when that little ball goes under the water pulls under everybody knows what it is right and they get some fish and then they can sort of evolve from there and it's just a deadly method to fish because it's it keeps your fly out of trouble. It's not going to hang up on the bottom because if you're six feet of water and two feet of weed, so you've got two feet of workable water, you can hang a fly two feet down and not worry about it getting all tangled up and stuff. So, um, but And then you can evolve, have some success, and then try the other methods.
0: Yeah, interesting. And I guess you would, would you try to have your indicator kind of be just buoyant enough to hold your fly up so that it doesn't give a lot of resistance?
1: Yeah, you generally obviously need to make it visible. Um, so it's different, um, there's lots of things that impact, like I try to use the smallest indicators I can get away with because they're easier to cast. And one of the, my basic principles of indicator fishing is you don't want to make long casts because, um, you know, depending on how, what fly you're using and how you're presenting it, your takes are not always aggressive. So they, the indicator can just slide left or right and you gotta, you'll develop an eye for when things don't look right and set the hook because the, the takes aren't you know, I think we all like a take where an indicator gets pulled under the water and it goes under so hard it leaves a bubble trail. Um, but that does not that's not always the reality. So if you cast too far away, you can't see those kind of subtle takes. And even if you can, you can't react to them. So it's a good idea, you know, use your indicator. Because if your indicator is too big, you can cast it further because it's more visible. But other things that come into it, um, obviously the weight of the fly or your flies, you know, heavier flies require more indicator to hold them up and if the surface is choppy um, you know the the smaller indicators get a little harder to see and the swells chop the surface chop so you move a little bigger so there's no You know, I think everybody's looking in in indicators for the silver bullet, that one perfect indicator, and it doesn't exist. I think that's
0: a good thing. Yeah, fair fair (laughs) enough. Well, that sounds like a really good jumping-off place for folks, whether it's brim or bass or smallmouth. Uh, Yeah, yeah, we have walleye down here. Um,
1: Yeah, I fish for walleye all the time up here. In In the summer months, our lakes get quite warm, you know, too warm to, you know, fishing for trout and uh, but the walleye are a much more temperature tolerant species and i chase them all the time i find them a fascinating fish to chase on the fly because you're not supposed to so you know if somebody tells me you can't catch a fish on the fly i'm instantly intrigued to do it right because i believe you can i always hit my motto is if it's one of my models if it swims and eats i think we can catch it on the fly right? and there's just so many i, I feel i I know people, they have their own preferences, but I really believe, like, keep your options open. Like, learn to, because you learn so many things from other species or other methods that you can transport, you know, to whatever your preferred fly. Like, I'd love to European nymph. Fascinates me. It's kind of the moving water equivalent. We have a technique in still waters we call the naked technique which is how I first used to learn to fish midges because strike indicators weren't around, where you would fish a floating line and leaders that were 15, 18, 20, 25, close to 30 feet long, make a cast as far as you comfortably could, let that line and leader lay out, wait a minute for that little unweighted fly because heads weren't around to sink, and then just slowly inch it back, like maybe half an inch at a time, and just watch that fly line to straighten right? Half the time you would see the take before you felt it, right? So that's a method that I really enjoy and, you know, try to build people up to because it's it's very technical. It's all, you know, leader length, and pattern weight. There's a lot of variables to play with it. And, uh, but it teaches you patience and touch, which patience to let the fly sink and, um, to, and to move it slow enough and touch just to recognize those really subtle takes, which pay big dividends in other disciplines of fly fishing too
0: yeah and being patient pays dividends in life as well
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i always joke when i take somebody fishing if they're an ardent dedicated streamer fisherman they're the most challenging because they're they're used to pulling flies fast and if they're river fishermen they're walking and waiting and bending and casting they're always on the go and to sit them in the boat and say okay make the cast Okay, how long do I let it sink? Well, we're going to start with a minute. They're like, what? And then, okay, when do I bring it back? Okay, bring it, because I time it on my watch. And then, okay, now, how fast? No, slower than that, slower than that. Like, when we're fishing that naked technique, one of the principles of the retrieve is you're moving the fly line so slowly it will not make a wake when you strip it on the water. So you're moving it. You're just basically dragging it across the surface right so it's it's uh it's quite funny i i I do have some fun with them and they have fun with me when i'm on rivers fishing streamers
0: (laughs) yeah i would say that would uh that you can really torture them that way and then you know it's funny too too, phil because i you know the first time i kind of met you was uh you know watching the new fly fisher and um i was really kind of curious you know we've talked about your writing and your commercial tying. you know how did you uh get hooked up with the guys at the new fly fisher
1: well it was because of the book um you know my, The Fly Patterns for Still Waters came out I want to say about 20, 21 years ago at least now. And it had just come out and the producer of the show, Colin McEwen, um, called me out of the blue. And I guess he'd read my book and he had a, a shoot planned for Fortress Lake, which is a trophy brook trout lake located in the Canadian Rockies uh, just over the border from Alberta into British Columbia. So um, I was all excited to do this. Um, so I you know, got time off work at the time and drove um, basically across the province to get there. And we helicoptered in, so you get a fly-in destination. So the the trip alone was worth the price of admission. And uh, you know, spent a week there fishing with them. And it was, you know, I, I felt the pressure because obviously you you want to do well and, and uh, <laughs> you know have a good shoot and, and catch some fish and and look like you know what you're talking about. And and uh, you know, I vision generally a steep-sided high mountain lake is not as productive as a lowland lake um just the the way the nutrients work and um amongst other things so i wasn't terribly optimistic that um you know it was going to be a challenging shoot because uh for fly fishing in lakes we're much better in water 20 feet deep or less that's sort of our sweet spot because of that's where all the sunlight penetrates, creates weeds, which creates habitat for food, which brings in the predator, which is the fish. And from all the presentation techniques, we have our full suite of techniques we can use. Whereas you get out into deep water, there's not a lot of food living out there per se as compared to the shallows, and the line types and the retru- the presentation options you have narrow greatly. Um, but it was a fan- it's a fantastic fishery. The big brook trout there. I don't know if they're as big as they are today. Um, it's been a number of years since I've been in there, but uh had a great shoot and um I got invited back. So that turned into a few more guest appearances and then brought on as a co host and I still um do that role as much as I can whenever the opportunity presents itself today. So I've I've had the good fortune to um, you know, travel all over North America Film in different locations, fish rivers and streams, fish for, you know, take my stillwater fishing and take it from trout and chasing pike and lake trouts and, you know, figuring out how to get lake trout out of 70, 80 feet of water or more and catch them on the fly. All those kind of things. Pike are a lot of fun on the fly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so how many seasons have you been on the show?
1: Off and on, well over Probably fifteen, you know. Sometimes, you know, I might be on the show two times a season um, because a lot of times my schedule now gets in the way, speaking in schools and workshops. I do destination workshops, hosted trips, and stuff that I'm just not available. So, whenever there's an opportunity, I I, I definitely take it up.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting too because I it's really interesting to watch how. Uh, Colin has kind of evolved the way the show's put together and it's distributed. And I've, you know, kind of see that a little bit with you, you know, how did that help you? You know, you're super active on YouTube. Um, you know, you've, you've been doing kind of on-demand video as kind of a replacement for DVDs. And I know with, with COVID, you've kind of gotten into live stream video, you know, how did that kind of yep. flow out of the new fly fisher for you?
1: Well, to be one of the byproducts of fishing because they live in such beautiful places is you want to record your experiences with a camera. And I was always, you know, interested in photography. It just sort of came. And and also when I did my first book, um, I shot all the step-by-step fly tying pictures and took pictures of all the bugs. So I had to teach myself macro photography back in the slide world. And there wasn't a lot of, you know, the internet wasn't around. It was very hard to find um, resources to get answers to your questions. So it was an awful lot of trial and error and an awful lot of slides that um, went from the slide sleeve to the garbage can and about three (laughs) seconds flat. I always remember I took out fly tying a a, a photography at the San Mateo show. I was speaking there and, you know, got a break in between my presentations and caught lefty craze. Um, He put on a photography um, seminar and one of the lines he said said in that was, uh, um, you know, Pictures are not like fine wine. They don't get better with age. So if it's a crappy picture to start with, it'll still be crappy in three months, and so get rid of it, throw it out. <laughs> so, yeah, so that sort of stuck to that. So I was fascinated by the photography. So, you know, on the television shoots, when you're, you know, when there's quiet time or whatever in the evenings, I'd be asking questions of the cameraman and having these dialogues and better understanding photography. And, and then, of course, now with digital photography and videography coming, you know, so... Relevant, you know. I like got an iPhone 13. That's probably more powerful than my first, way more powerful than my first camera. So, you know, all the tools we have at our disposal nowadays to to do good content is is really refreshing and nice. So, always had a fascination with that. That's probably my second addiction is is the photography. I'm a, you know, it's bad enough. I'm a like gear junkie and fishing. I love having stuff and you know, fly tying gear, and scissors, and all that stuff, and rods and lines and all the accessories that go with that. And then and then to get into photography as well, which is, you know, can be quite expensive. So I've, I've actually learned to sort of tone down my wish list a little bit, and do a lot of research before pulling the pin.
0: Yeah, but that being said, I mean, you can uh, you can rack up camera gear on a like fly rod equivalent basis pretty quickly.
1: <laughs> oh, on a global scale, yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: right. You can spend more. You could spend
0: more uh, on the camera gear than some third world countries. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, so it's, so it's interesting, right? We're seeing all this stuff evolve and you're kind of in what I kind of consider kind of the both extremes of, of video, you know, uh, kind of traditional video, kind of more like the TV show, the new fly fisher, but also, you know, you're really kind of pushing into, you know, social media video. And, you know, I was just kind of curious about kind of your thoughts on those two worlds and.
1: Yeah, because we use it, you know, some of it depends on what I'm using it for. So when I'm doing educational content, you know, I tend to look at it, I need to spend as long as it takes to tell that story. Um, so that tends to be more traditional. I've done produced a, a couple of videos, um, Conquering Coronamid series I did with Brian Chan, because that's a discipline of still water fishing that uh, every, you know, and as soon as you come to lakes, you realize you've got to come to grips with that. That particular food source and how to present it. And there's so many different presentation options, it can be quite intimidating and frustrating. So, that was again, a lot of my stuff is just trying to take the frustration and so I, they don't have to go through what I have to go through, you know, try and shorten that curve for them any way I can. Um, so, there's times when more of a traditional video approach would be there. Um, but, like the social side of things, you know, the time lapse photography of fly tying, um, use those. Somewhat as a teaser to bring people to other things, as well. Because social media, a lot of times, you are limited by uh, time length. Like I think Instagram, you can only have sixty seconds, so you you've got a you know the medium kind of dictates how you're going to tell your story or pieces of it, or you're going to have to tell that story in segments, uh, things like that. So it's it's fun and it's challenging.
0: Yeah, absolutely. and I mean, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, I, I, I remember film. And, you know, I was thinking about you, you having to teach yourself macro photography. And it's not like you take a picture and then you look at the monitor on the back of the camera and you delete it and you no. try it again. Um, right. Yeah. So the digital thing's a big development. But, you know, what have you kind of seen in your time in terms of, you know, the arc of, you know, how content creation has evolved and kind of what do you think the future is going to look like?
1: It's going to be, I think, um, more online based. I think, you know, and I think that's if you could say one good thing about the pandemic is it's for me personally. I had had a, a concept in my mind to to provide, you know, ac- educational access through the internet years in, before the technology even existed. Before Zoom, Zoom was just a dream of somebody, and you just couldn't figure out to do it. You would have to go and develop that software yourself or that process, which would have been horrifically expensive. Um, but now it's it's mainstream. And it's just made, you know, it makes the, the ability to reach the world I do with through my YouTube channel. I, I try to do at least one live event a month, whether it's a tying focused event or I have a guest on and they're all mine. My niche is still water fly fishing. So having, you know, guests on or myself on by myself focused on that uh, genre. Um, it's incredible to see, you know, people from New Zealand and Chile and England and you know, popping on and, and saying hi, and it's really kind of neat that we can pull each other all together, um, all for a common love of something.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. You know, one of the things I did during the early part of COVID is, uh, you know, I think uh, I think Tom Rosenbauer probably needed his own FCC license. Um, <laughs> he was live streaming so much, and to kind of to your point, yeah. you watch that and you see um, the reach, and it's pretty phenomenal
1: and the beauty of it too with these live events they're live at that moment in time but they record i use a broadcast software system that allows me to stream simultaneously to my facebook page and my youtube channel so people can you know digest that content in whatever medium they like and then it's recorded there so it actually sort of grows and builds its own legs just because of the people watching it all the time. And people can go back and refer to it rather than, you know, it's almost like how traditional TV was. If your favorite show was on at eight o'clock on a Tuesday night and you missed it, that's it. You missed it. There was no way to, to watch that show again. And then the VCR came along and then, you know, and and now streaming and how just the way everything's evolved, that we are all now able to consume, uh, content more on our own terms. Um, you know, because of the pressures of life, or scheduling, or time zones, or, or, or what have you, right? So that's that's how it's evolving, and I think it's, you know, for I think from a customer service perspective, we're either better able to service our customers and and give it to them when they want it, how they want it, which is you know, you're not trying to put a square peg in a round hole all the time, like you sometimes in traditionally
0: you were. Yeah. It's funny you say that because I was just explaining to my youngest son that uh, when I was growing up, there were three TV channels and then oh. uh, there were 26 episodes and half the year had reruns. And he looked at me like it was yep. the worst world that I could have ever possibly grown up in. I,
1: I've had that same conversation with my sons. You know, we had three channels, and then it got to thirteen, and then the U channel. And then I joke with them. You know, you have to get off the couch to change the channel. Um, <laughs> it was black and white. You know, the television weighed about eight thousand pounds. Um, it was this giant block. Um, oh yeah, I, my wife and I chuckle sometimes uh, looking back. You know, oh, remember that? Remember that? You know, those kind of the way thing the way things were. You know, now you can. You can stream it whenever you want. Netflix. You can binge a whole series, you know, over the Christmas holidays or what have you. Um, you know, it's a great way to consume. So it's it's it's. I enjoy it. I like those challenges and, and how it's always changing. There's no rules, right? Which is kind of fun.
0: Yeah, it's it's neat. It's neat too, and I like kind of how it's becoming more democratized, right? In terms of you know the you know you, there's still huge value on kind of curation and good content, and that really matters.
1: Oh yeah, there's no substitute. Yeah, there's no substitute for you know good content, well shot, good audio. Right. I think people will tolerate a little bit of um, you know not the greatest video content at times. To, you know, sometimes it's the way the shot turned out. But if they can't hear what you're saying or whatever, it really. Frowned. I remember that when I was studying up on YouTube and how to you know be a YouTube creator and some of the do's and don'ts. Audio was super important, right. Hear what they say without wind noise or crackle.
0: Yeah, and it's amazing, you know. And it now, as opposed to going to you know cameras that you know no one had, now it's a phone in your pocket. And you know, if you buy a yeah. Mac, you buy a Macintosh. You know, all the software you need to do any of that stuff is there.
1: Yep. Well, when I you know back to calling and filming, you know, my love of photography. I remember one of the shoots I was on in Manitoba because um, I tended to get all the Stillwater shows, which I still do, and I, I love that. No complaints there. Um, but I remember we. The cameraman I was working with, it, they just got a new Panasonic. I don't expect anybody to know it's a big full, you know, full size camera, HDTV or something. It was called, and I, you know, I'm fascinated I'm looking at it. What's that button do? And I and I, I said, well, how much is that worth? Well, the body's worth, you know. Seventy five thousand dollars, and the lens is thirty grand, and I was like, I'm not touching this. <laughs> and that, you know, and you would show up for a TV show with all this gear and everything's big, and you know, poor cameraman's um, baggage charges were, were just excessive. And now you can show up with a backpack, and you've got a you know, a full frame camera and a couple of lenses, and everything fits together. And you, you almost worry sometimes when you show up for a shoot that you look like you haven't got enough equipment to do the job when really you've got more than enough equipment to do the job. It's incredible. Like you, I've got a drone now that's a joke. It's like a, an iPhone with propellers on it. It's so small. I'm going to worry I'm going to put it down somewhere and not be able to find it.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's funny too, cause you're incredibly busy. I mean, you teach, you guide, you write, you create video content, you know, and you live stream and, and you, you know, you must have a really disciplined Production process, and you must be really, really good at time management. And I was wondering if you had any, you know, tips uh, you wanted to share uh, with folks, or maybe any insights into your process that other content creators could maybe benefit from.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, and it was from my. You know, I spent 23 years in the auto collision and insurance business, so there's always a lot of, you know, time management involved with that. So I'm a real addict to um, Outlook. Uh, I got i'm a mac on mac now so outlook for mac and everything goes on task lists or on appointments um so i don't have to remember all the time you know prior to that i was always writing you know, probably remember you could get those to-do pads you could buy <laughs> people that published, you know stationary stores their to-do lists and i would write everything down on the to-do list make notes um all of that stuff um really disciplined on on following that stuff and I get a lot of satisfaction out of crossing something off a list, a sense of accomplishment some days are better than others um, obviously Um, but just sticking to a schedule um, it's it's just a, a lot of it's just mental will, you gotta get it done right because you you know once you get behind it's very hard to get out in front of it again so I'm a big believer, drives my wife crazy sometimes but never put off today, tomorrow what you could do today because you never know what tomorrow's going to bring, so we all get guilty of it from time to. Oh, I'll do that tomorrow, and yet if you'd spent 15, 20 minutes, you would have got it done. Because tomorrow something went sideways that didn't allow you to do it, and now you're behind again. So, um, and and learning to bite off what you can chew, and that just takes a little bit of experience. And you know, I've got a, a mentor of mine that helps me on the the social and the sort of the the technology side of it. And I was explaining what I did, and he said. Roy, you're a mile wide and a foot deep, <laughs> just stuck in my head. Because <laughs> I don't like to let opportunities pass by either, right? I will take them on and sometimes to my detriment, but I'll figure out how to get them done because they've got to be done.
0: Yeah, it's funny you say that. I have a, a, a post-it note here on my iMac that says, say no. Um, yeah. And, and uh, you know, it's interesting. I always remember that uh, Steve Jobs quoted something to the effect of, you know he's more proud of the things he said no to that so that he could say yes to the things that he did do um uh, yep. and that's a hard yep. thing to do very hard thing to do
1: yep. and i tend to you know point in my life that i don't have to do everything right and i do like you say you get to pick and choose what you want to do you know some things i do cuz i you know maybe monetarily they're not as lucrative as something else but i really enjoy doing them and Part of it is, you got to, you know, the beauty of what I'm able to do now is I'm doing something I want to do. And when I do the work, I get the benefit of it, which is as opposed to when you worked in a corporate world, the corporation or the company got the benefit of that stuff, right? It was hard to, you know, it was just a, I don't know if I'd be a good employee anymore.
0: Yeah, I, I know for a fact I wouldn't be. Um. <laughs> I'd be fired in about 10 minutes, I think. Yeah. You,
1: think, you know, when you go to work for yourself... Issue decision making process. My wife is, is very much involved with the business. She she likes to do the editing on my uh, the videos. I like to shoot them. I you know I can edit, but um, she she does the, a lot of the editing on it. I've got a friend who helps me with the fly time videos as well to keep up with that. That does it. So you know I always joke I'm the eye candy, which is a really not a good analogy for me. But um, um, they you know you got you get your your help and support from there. But uh, um, yeah, it's it's. It's just uh, important. Uh, all those things all come together to help to support. But I, I don't think I could go back in that corporate world because you just the decision making process. When there's an issue, my wife and I talk about it, we act on it, and we move on. Yep. Whereas in the corporate world, we need a committee. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Got to do this. And six months. Six months later, I remember one organization I worked for. I was actually on the committee as to why we have committees, which was the ultimate. So yeah. Can't scratch.
0: It. That's the uh, <laughs> that's the complete uh, Dilbert moment right there.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. It's just like no wonder that we never get anything done. And of course, your staff were. Always, I was management, so my staff were always, you know, felt abandoned because their boss was never there. He was always off at a meeting somewhere, and I never got anything done. And then you're getting pressure because your, por- your performance reviews aren't done, or not meeting target, or whatever the issues were. Right? And it's like, well, stop putting me on this stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm. I don't know. I always tell people I'm self-employed, and I really like the boss. He's very reasonable I and know. a very nice guy.
1: Yeah, always seems to know what I'm thinking.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know, and and as we kind of start to wind down tonight, Phil, I I wondered if you could let folks know, you know, the best place for them to order not only your Orvis Guide to Stillwater Trout Fishing, but you know your other books and your videos. And, you know, I'm sure they're kind of the traditional places like Amazon, but I suspect there's a way for people to get signed copies and stuff like that too.
1: Exactly, yeah. Many years ago, uh, Brian Chan and I and myself were both, Stillwater Addicts, we work together, we're kind of like a rock band, we do our own things and then come back together for a union concert uh, a couple, three times a year, so we both had independent, uh, still do independent channels, uh, websites rather, but um, we both had stores, uh, independent stores, and we just got together and said, why are we, you know, making our customers go to two places to shop, why don't we consolidate and do one shop, so Brian and I have set up Phil and Brian's uh, Stillwater Fly Fishing Store. And we cater, it's an online store, we cater to everything, stillwater trout fishing basically, and stillwater fishing. So we have all of our books there, videos, our custom flies that are tied on our behalf, accessories, looking to grow and expand that. So that's the stillwaterflyfishingstore.com. Uh, pretty simple um, email address, but that's all of the books and videos, all the books there. Um, you can pick up my new book there and they all come autographed.
0: Uh, very cool. And I'll drop a a link to the shop uh, in the show notes. And also, I always add um, all of my author's books. I have a author's page on the website. So, uh, oh, yeah. Great. yeah, two easy places for folks to, to find yeah. your stuff. And then, you know, we were talking before we started recording. Uh, things are a little bit in flux right now uh, with COVID, but I still suspect you have some upcoming events and appearances you want to let folks know about.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm taking them sort of one at a time to see how... At what phase or what variant is going on at any one time? Um, because it is a, a challenge, you know, traveling between countries with um, restrictions and testing you have to get to travel nowadays and being able to get them. But uh, next up, I've got the Denver, the fly fishing show in Denver. Uh, and then two weeks after that is the fly fishing show in Pleasanton, California, which is the Bay Area. It's just about. 35, 40 minutes south of Oakland, and then the Wasatch Tying Expo in uh, Salt Lake City. And then once April kicks, uh, once April's done, then the season starts, and I start to do uh, destination schools. So I have schools in three schools in British Columbia uh, at different um, lakes and lodges, and I've got one in eastern Canada at uh, Canuck Nature, which is located just north of Montreal. Um, And uh, so I'll be doing those and probably some filming in there. And in October, I'm going back down to Argentina again. Uh, I do hosted trips um, to uh, Jurassic Lake, which is sort of the World Series, World Cup, Super Bowl of stillwater trout fishing because the trout down there are massive. They average uh, 12 to 15 pounds. And uh, that's where I've got my personal best on the fly down there. So. It's a it's a great experience to go there. Oh, I guess there's also the in April there's the uh, Marlboro fly fishing show because it was moved. Yeah, um, it was the first weekend so they uh, move that uh, to April, which I think will be a good thing. So I'm looking to, to see people and, and be be at those again. And, of course, there's the Fly Tying Symposium uh, later in the fall um, as well. And it just goes in that cycle over and over
0: again. Yeah. And so for your destination trips, are all those on your website, or are they done kind of through the lodges?
1: Yeah, I have them on my website uh, I'm just in the process of updating them uh, because they fill so quickly. Sometimes they don't even get a chance to get up because – um, I have some, you know, i built a lot of repeat customers that just send me emails, put me on the list and they get the first call because they supported me before and, and, and they fill up. So, and then I have my new, I have a newsletter as well. So if you go to my website, you can, right on the home page, you can sign up and join my newsletter and that's a great way to keep in touch. It's an educational based newsletter. So it does let people know about schools and trips I'm doing, but also there's lots of little, uh, educational nuggets there that I put into, to help them, um, you know, enjoy their on-the-water experience.
0: Yeah, very cool. And I'll drop links to all that stuff in the show notes. Any kind of Thanks. projects or anything else you want to share with folks?
1: Um, you know, just working on the online learning. I'm trying to put a um, chronomet course together. Um, uh, tying and fishing chronomet. So I'm just uh, working on that. That'll probably um, more be known about that probably in the next by the end of this week. Um, so again, for your viewers, that's probably middle of february that'll be out and it'll be a a six um six, six night course two and a half hours each night tying and, and fishing techniques and uh, all, you know all live and on camera and then i'm doing more developing more um particularly this um spring and summer when i'm not guiding or on the water i'll be filming a lot of content for additional educational um looking to do some online clinic classes that you can just in an evergreen state that you can just sign up and and take them whenever you want at your own self-paced way as opposed to just the live methods the live streaming and the live uh, um, ways too which I really enjoy doing it's fun to interact with people that way
0: yeah absolutely so the moral of the story is subscribe to the newsletter and uh and then i would say too you know what what's the best way for folks to kind of follow your fishing adventures you 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 know you mentioned the newsletter but i'm sure you're on every flavor of social media we all we know right (laughs)
1: yeah yeah i try to be i'm on uh, twitter linkedin facebook instagram and youtube dabbling a little bit in tiktok um because of the video side of it, but probably I'm most active on YouTube and Instagram. So Phil Rolly Fly Fishing is my Facebook page, the same Phil Rolly Fly Fishing with uh, Instagram, and I believe it's the same for TikTok as well, and uh, my YouTube channel. I always say to people the best thing to do is just Google my name, put Phil Roley Fly Fishing, and everything I will well We'll pop up there and make it uh, one-stop shopping for everyone. Yeah. And, of course, this is my website, too, flycraftangling.com, that will be morphing over soon um, to fill Rolly fly fishing.
0: Uh, well, there you go, and I will drop all of those in the show notes. So if people are too lazy to Google, they can just go to the show notes and click on <laughs> click on the link of That's their the choice.
1: That's place to go. Because <laughs> you've got lots of other great content for them to listen to as well.
0: So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, Phil, I super appreciate uh, you taking the time to chat with me this evening. It's been a lot of fun.
1: It has, Marvin. It's been, it's been great. It's always fun to talk fly fishing. And as I always say, it's usually tough to get me to shut up, not to talk.
0: <laughs> oh, no, it's all good. And hopefully our paths will cross in Denver.
1: I hope so. Looking forward to it.
0: Absolutely. Take care. You too. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, a shout-out to this episode's sponsor, our friends at Norvice. You owe it to yourself to head over to www.nor-vice.com and check out all their cool products and their show schedule this season. And again, folks, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend, and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. Tight lines, everybody.